privilege to be back here in Newland preaching to you folks again. Wow, I like this big Bible. Mine's like that too. <clears throat> if you can tell from my voice, I have a tad bit of a cold, so I've not been shaking hands. Uh, if you don't care, you can shake my hand, but I won't try to shake your hand. <clears throat> the only good thing that comes from having this little bit of a cold is makes my voice a little deeper and maybe more, a little more authoritative, so I'll try not to take advantage of that too much. <clears throat> so if you have your Bibles open to James chapter 1, you're going to be looking at verses 19 through 27 this morning. In these verses, the style here is maybe at first glance similar to that of a proverb. If you're familiar with the book of Proverbs, especially the center section. So if you've ever, I'm sure many of you haven't tried to teach the book of Proverbs, but, but Proverbs is easy to teach until you get to about chapter 10. Then it turns into these like just small, short, maybe one, two verses that have the same meaning. Uh, and, and it's just all these different jumbled meanings of different things from verse to verse. And you can't really preach a sermon when when you have like five verses and every verse has a different meaning. So... There have even been books written to help pastors go through the book of Proverbs and uh, and find topics in all the different verses and just kind of squeeze them together and preach it that way. But James is actually a, a student of the book of Proverbs, so so a lot of his uh, his material has to do with wisdom and things like that. But I do believe there is at least one cohesive big idea here in verses 19 through 27. And I think the big idea is that God's word is working in you. And he's talking about different aspects, different angles of how God's word is working in you. Now, I entitled the sermon, Receive the Implanted Word, which comes from verse 21, because I think that's the big idea of the section. Receive the implanted word and all these other aspects will flow out of the word as it is implanted in you. Uh, much of what James is teaching here is summed up in Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. This might be a familiar passage for many of you. Isaiah says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return from there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So, like Isaiah, James knows that the word is active in you. It's doing things in you. It changes your way of thinking, and it actually moves you to action. In these verses, James wants to challenge you to examine your life. He talks about a mirror. He wants you to hold your life up next to the mirror of God's word. And he wants you to not walk away from that mirror unchanged. He wants the word to change you. But he also wants to encourage you. So this isn't just about challenging you, making you feel guilty. It's also about encouraging you by the fact that God plants his word in you. He's the one doing it. He plants it in you. And when his word is, is planted in you, it will be successful to accomplish his goal. And his goal is your salvation. There's uh, there's two simple points of the passage. I don't know why when I preach the book of James, I always get two-point sermons. Uh, 
It's supposed to be three. That's the, that's the rule. You're supposed to have three points. But I've divided this into from the verse that says, be hearers of the word and doers of the word. So the first point is hear the word, which is verses 19 through 21, and do the word, which is uh, 22 to 27. So as we approach this passage, James is still speaking in the context of verse 2, which I think we're all familiar with, that various trials will come in the Christian life. And as you work through the book of James, you're going to start seeing that James isn't really focused on the external circumstances that bring the trial. James is starting to flesh out the fact that the real trial is how your heart responds to those circumstances. That's the real trial. The outward thing does not make the trial. It is how is my heart going to respond when things come along that inconvenience me, things that I don't like. So that is the real trial. He says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. In our trials, we can be tempted to not listen. We can become so consumed with our problem that our problem is all we can talk about. Our problem is all we can think about. We tend to drown out everything else, even good things that can help us while we're in the trial. We can even begin to not listen to the truths of God's word. We can talk to others about our trial and we talk to ourselves about our trial but we begin to not listen. This is a temptation. We don't hear the truth, and we don't think on things that are true, as Paul tells us to in Philippians chapter 4. We forget the truth about God, the truth about our hope, the truth about our duty to be faithful in the trial. And here's something we don't think about, our duty to even think about others in our trials. So this is something that kind of hit me as I studied this passage, I actually went and, and visited somebody who had a really serious health issue. And during that visit, this person was more concerned about other people, and especially the spiritual needs of other people. Now, we did talk about their problem and their issue. We prayed about that. But mostly this person was concerned about especially the spiritual condition of the children our church and that's what they wanted to talk about and at the time this was very encouraging to me but when I studied this when I studied this passage about not hearing and not thinking of others in your trials it also became very convicting to me personally I don't know about you guys but personally I I focus on myself when I suffer I care about myself more than others when I'm in suffering uh, my personality is geared towards order. I like structure in my life. I like to have immediate solutions to any type of chaos that there might be in my life. It's not a, not a good personality characteristic to have as a pastor. Uh, and I want all those things that might hinder my goals to be gotten out of the way immediately. don't like those things. It's easy for, for all of us to get caught up in our daily trials and forget to step back and ask, how is God building endurance in me? This is a question I always forget to ask. 
how does God want to fix me and my heart while I'm dealing with these inconveniences that he's sovereignly bringing into my life? So James says, be quick to hear. Listen to those who have godly counsel when you're suffering. Listen to the needs of others. So try to be mindful of even of others and their spiritual needs while you're suffering. I know that when, if you're sick and home, it's a good time to be able to pray for the souls of, of people that you know. So, now I'm not saying become a stoic. Please don't think that I'm saying that. Don't, don't build a wall up around yourself. And never tell anybody about your suffering. That's not what I'm saying. We need to share our burdens with other people. Uh, but don't become so self-consumed in your trials that you become quick to speak and slow to hear. That's what James wants. Don't be quick to speak and slow to hear. Now, another thing that, that needs to be slow in our trials is our temper. And I don't know about you, but trials can definitely raise the temperature of our tempers. We stop hearing the word when we are quick to anger. James says, be slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That passage rattles in my head a lot when I feel angry. I don't know where I heard this before, but but I've heard this. Anger is the devil's cocaine. Anybody else ever heard that before? I can't remember where I first heard that. And what I mean by this, if you're confused by that quote, anger can be addictive like cocaine. And, and it can give us a feeling of power, kind of like a drug does. We can begin to enjoy the feeling of righteousness that anger gives you. We can be swept away with the, with the rush of putting that person in their place. It just feels so good to set them straight. Are you aware of anger in your life? Do you think about the little things that make you angry? How do you feel when you're, I don't know what the grocery stores are around here. There's got to be an ingle somewhere here in the mountains. <laughs> There's always ingles in the mountains. Uh, for us, it's mainly Walmart, Food Lion. We do have an Ingles, though. But, I mean, those stores, they don't move, they don't move fast. Uh, their lines are slow. The self-checkouts don't work real well either. But how do you feel when you're about to get in line and somebody just cuts right in front of you? Waiting forever. Oh, man. This raises the temperature. How do you feel when you're late for work and... I know up here in the mountains there's not a whole lot of passing lanes. And so you're late for work and the person in front of you is going five miles under the speed limit. Probably me, I'm the one who drives five miles under the speed limit. <clears throat> These are the kinds of things that are just little trials that test our hearts. And, and when we give in to them, give us a righteous taste of anger. That self-righteousness. And I know... I don't know about you, but traffic is always the good example for me from my own life of the test of anger because I'm sure I have had lots of out loud conversations in my car with nobody else around, and uh, I, don't, I do fail those tests very often. 
When we continuously give ourselves over to anger, we stop hearing the word. When we are angry, we're quick to speak. We love to speak when we're angry. And we're slow to hear. And here's the problem. Trials are meant to show you that you need to relinquish control. And anger is a way to keep control. And that is why God cannot produce righteousness in you if you are giving yourself over to anger because you keep taking the control back from him. And he wants you to realize you're dependent upon him and he's the one who's in control. Now, if you are quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger, James says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The language of of the removal of filthiness, this is actually conversion language. The Bible uses this language to speak of conversion or regeneration or being born again in several places. Uh, Zechariah chapter 3 is one of those. Paul uses uses it a couple times in the book of Ephesians. And James emphasizes this conversion language even more when he says, Receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So here's the question. This book is written to people that James has called beloved brothers. Now what does beloved brothers imply? That implies that you are converted, right? You don't usually go around calling unconverted people beloved brothers. So the question is, Why is James speaking to converted people about conversion? So just give me a second. I'm going to do a little small, simple uh, lesson on theology and hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is just Bible interpretation. So the first answer to this is just simply covenant theology. Now, if you're not familiar with covenant theology, all that is is the concept that God speaks to his visible church as though they are all what they have been called out to be. You are a holy people. You are a righteous people. And that's spoken to the visible church who is called out. So James is speaking to a whole people here that are called out by God in the visible church to be his people. And so he's, he's giving names to them as though they are what they have, as though they are what they have been called to be. Now, This doesn't mean that they're all converted. It just means that externally they are God's people. So we all understand that in the church there are people who aren't saved. There are even people who might even think they are who aren't. And so part of what's going on here is that is that James is speaking to the whole people that are that are uh, God's visible church, but he knows there are unconverted in there who need to be converted. So he's saying, search your heart to see if you're converted. The second thing that's going on here is that salvation is a past event that we refer to as regeneration or justification or conversion. It's also a future event. What do we call the future event? Anybody know? Glorification, that's right. And it is a present reality. What's the present reality of our salvation? Sanctification, that's right. So 
The, dif- the difficulty for us as modern Christians is we tend to focus a lot on the past event, which is not a bad thing. If you're going to focus a lot on something, that's a good thing to focus on. But we forget that we can speak of salvation as though it's still going on. And I think we're afraid to do that because of Roman Catholic ideas of, of ongoing justification. This isn't justification that's going on, but sanctification is just as much a part of your salvation as justification is. So, so part of what James is doing here is he's also saying, continue to be cleansed. Continue to be converted. Continue to be saved. It's an ongoing thing. And uh, I always like to compare James with Paul because people think that James and Paul oppose each other. Paul teaches this same type of thing in Philippians chapter 2 where he says, work out your salvation. Now, that almost sounds like Paul's teaching work salvation, but he's not. He's just saying continue to seek sanctification. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. See there, Paul's not saying you're doing the work. God's doing the work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay, so that's the end of the little theology lesson. So the word of God implanted within us is able to save us initially, and it continues to save us as we continue to hear it and have our hearts and minds changed by it. That's the ongoing salvation. But the word doesn't just cause us to hear truth, and this is one thing that James really wants to get across in his epistle. The word doesn't just cause you to believe and hear things that are true. It causes you to act and walk in those things that are true. So beginning in verse 22, this is the second point. This is doing the word. Beginning in verse 22, James says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Listening alone is not enough. James says that a person who listens to the word and does not actively obey the word is like someone who walks up messy and looks into a mirror and then turns around and walks away messy. Gazing into the word of God should cause active changes. It should move you to want to change. And James is saying that the word has the characteristics that Paul describes in 2 Timothy 3.16-17 where he says, It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, and it equips us for every good work. When you have truly received the implanted word, it does something in you, and it causes you to take action. And James says this action produces blessing. In verse 25, he says, The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Now, the term law there, not be confused by that, the term law there is just another term for the Word of God. The Bible refers to the Word of God as the law in several places. Now, in our culture, we don't really like the word law. When we think of law, we think 
oppression, suppression. We think of people who don't want to have fun. Uh, but the Bible says that the law of God is a law of liberty. It doesn't oppress and suppress. It liberates. It releases you. It frees you. And that's what God designed it for. He designed us to live and to even flourish as we act according to his word. Sin has caused us to think that God's law is oppressive. But it is really sin that oppresses us. It is sin that makes us sin slave and drags us off into destruction. Charles Spurgeon said, The happiest state of a Christian is the holiest state. As there is the most heat nearest to the sun, so there is the most happiness nearest to Christ. No Christian enjoys comfort when his eyes are fixed on vanity. He finds no satisfaction unless his soul is quickened in the ways of God. The world may win happiness elsewhere, but he cannot. When the word of God is working in you, it will be impossible for you to find contentment, to find satisfaction, to find happiness out in the world. There are those who are truly converted who do go out and try the world, who who buy the world's goods and taste of the world, but they're never happy. And God will always bring them back just like the prodigal. Now, James ends this chapter by saying, in essence, that the implanted word produces of all things religion. Religion. Religion is kind of a bad word today, right? I mean, not in the church, but it's it is kind of a bad word. It's been it's been even in even in modern evangelical circles, the word religion is is being canceled uh, for some reason. People believe that religion is the opposite of relationship with Christ. I don't know how that, I mean, James uses the word here in a positive way, so I don't understand how that started. James believes that religion is a good thing. And he believes that the word of God implanted in you produces good religion. But he also warns that like most good things, there is a false version of religion. In verse 26, he says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. First, James says that false religion has no control over the tongue. And if you're familiar with the book of of James, there's going to be lots of talking about the tongue in chapter 3. And Paul agrees with this condemnation of false religion and the tongue In Colossians 3, 8 through 9, he says, But now you must put away obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Paul again in Ephesians 5, 4 says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. How you speak may seem trivial, but James says, That those who have the implanted word, those who are producing true religion, are learning how to control their speech. And they care about their speech. As Christians, 
We do not have freedom of speech. As an American, you might, but as a Christian, you don't. Your speech, your tongue, belong to your Lord. And your speech and your tongue are meant to serve your Lord. So they do not belong to you. They belong to your Lord. In verse 27, James gives an example of what true religion looks like. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows and their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Douglas Moo says, in the ancient world with an absence of money-making possibilities for women and any kind of social welfare, widows and orphans were helpless to provide for themselves. James says that those who are living with the word of God implanted in them will not be closing their hearts to the needy among them. I believe I heard in uh, Keith, make sure I get your name right. I heard in his prayer saying that part of the, uh, the purpose of the offering is to help people in the community, to help provide for the needs of people in our congregation. And God wants us to have a heart for those people. And in the book of James, especially chapter 2, there's going to be a lot of James talking about, about Christians who believe that they're up here and the poor and needy are down here. And they don't even want to sit near them. They want them to sit back in the corner somewhere where nobody can see them. And they want the wealthy, wealthy and esteemed people to sit up front. But that's not the heart of God. True religion controlled by the word understands the importance of caring for the weak. God loves the weak. And this is the heart of our Father. Psalm 68.5 calls God Father of the fatherless and protector of widows. So if your God cares for orphans and widows and the needy, then you should reflect the heart of your God. If his word is working in you, you will love and care for orphans and widows and the needy. Now, in conclusion, James wants us to hear the word by being slow to speak, slow to anger, by putting away filthiness and rampant wickedness. He wants us to do the word by enacting change as the word reflects our flaws, by finding blessing in the liberty it produces, and by practicing true religion which has a heart for the needy. Now, are you feeling a little exhausted, maybe even discouraged about all the do's and the don'ts in this passage? That can be, that James can kind of wear down on you with the do's and the don'ts. Well, don't think that James is a believer or that he's teaching some type of, of theology of sinless perfection. He's not doing that. He believes in the grace of God working in you. And First John tells us that those who claim sinlessness are liars, so that we know that the Bible doesn't say that anybody can attain sinlessness. But what James is saying here is that when God plants his word in you, there's this very sometimes uncomfortable thing that's going to happen. There's going to be a violent war within you. There's an old sinful nature and there's a new creation inside of you that are warring 
with each other. And it's not always comfortable. It's not always fun. Charles Spurgeon said it's like having two junkyard dogs inside of you fighting all the time. <clears throat> this warfare is what actually presents the trials in your life. Because when the outside circumstances come in, inconveniences that your flesh doesn't like, your flesh is going to say, react in a sinful way. And the spirit within you is going to say, no, you react in a way that's honoring to your father. And then the war will begin. Thomas Watson said, men could be content to have the kingdom of heaven, but they are loath to fight for it. They choose rather to go in a feather bed to hell than to be carried to heaven in a fiery chariot of zeal and violence. The message of James is that the entirety of the Christian life is a trial. It is a test. All of it. The older you get, the war doesn't start ending. It doesn't necessarily get easier. I'll be 49 this month. Now, some of you are older than me. Been a Christian since I was 20. Some things I feel like I've grown in some wisdom, but it doesn't mean that the that the flesh is fighting any. He's given up any more than he has from the beginning. James wants you to know that the Christian life is not easy. There are dangers. There are deceits all along the way. There are signs trying to get you to pull off, stop following Christ, give in, go back to the world. It's too hard. Why are you even trying? It's easier just to flow downstream with the world. And if you think that you'll enter the kingdom of heaven on a feather bed, like Thomas Watson said, you're mistaken. You have to exert effort. You will be challenged. You will have defeats, and you will have scars. But here's the good news. The good news is, although you feel all the engaging, all the battling, all the effort, all the pain, you are not the source of the effort. You are not the power behind the effort. If you were, you would fail. You would not succeed if God were not the one planting his word in you. You may feel like you've given your last ounce of effort. You may feel like you're done. You might want to give up. But the spirit in you is saying, you're not going to give up. Because I am the power inside of you. You are going to persevere because I want you to persevere. So know, as you battle with sin, that its defeat is not based upon your effort. Keep fighting against your sin, but also keep turning to Christ, who is the only one who can defeat your sin. And God's word, when it's planted in you, according to Isaiah, is always going to accomplish God's purpose, which is your salvation. John Owen says, The Christian hope rests not ultimately upon our own diligence, but on God's faithfulness. It is God, not us, who will ultimately persevere. And that is why he is able to promise us eternal life. 
Where, there, where the promise is, there is all this assistance. So this is what John Owen says. When God promises to overcome your sin, here's the assistance that you get to overcome your sin. You have the faithfulness of God the Father. You have the grace of God the Son. And you have the power of God the Spirit. All working together for your preservation. And that should give you great hope. So don't be deceived into thinking that you can embrace the world while embracing Christ, but have hope in God's power to save you as you receive the implanted word, which will make you hearers and doers of it. Amen. So we're singing number 88. I'm not going to take your place. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs>